Revelation 1 12. seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven golden seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And boy, to that we say amen. And I have the keys of death, of Hades and of death. And write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. That's the word of the living God. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. You'll remember that the week before last, we looked at this from the standpoint of the fact that John turned aside. The Bible says, then, verse 12, I turned to see the voice. We reflected on the fact that God, the Son, appeared to him in this vision. And he was appearing from him from the behind, from behind him. He could have just as well, obviously appeared to him in front of him, but he was behind him. And certainly, I believe that we could take away from that that we need to turn aside like John did to see who it is that's speaking to us. I'm afraid that when the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ is dealt with, the actual purpose and meaning behind the book is sometimes lost in all the efforts to try to discern its, its predictive nature, things in the future, and to look at it as a, as a, as a future uh, revelation, a prophetic revelation, and it is. But to look at it not from the standpoint just of the, the prophecy of things that will take place that we know about, but to focus in on the fact that this is not just to know about end times, it is to know about Christ and His revelation in the end times. Christ is the subject of the Bible and not man. And a lot of times we have the tendency to look at 
different things in different ways and so focus on those things that we don't have a focus on Him. The focus of this is Him. He turned aside to see the voice that spoke with Him. And then we last week we looked at it from the standpoint of He turned aside to see the one who's in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. It's not just a matter of turning aside and seeing somebody who's in the midst of that lampstand, those lampstands. But it's to turn aside and see who it is that's in the midst of those lampstands. Who is it? And of course, it's none other than God, only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, standing in the middle of the seven lampstands. And we're told by Jesus himself, from what we just read, that those seven golden lampstands are seven churches. And there he is in the middle of them. As he is right now. He's here right now. He's in the middle of all the churches that meet in his name and worship the biblical Jesus through repentance toward him and faith in his offering of himself on the cross and his resurrected life and the hope of his promised return. He's in the midst. Hallelujah for that. And like we talked about sometimes, that's all you know, but it's never the case that that's not enough to know. That is enough to know. And there he holds, and he's among those seven lampstands, and he holds all of them uh, by his by his right hand. The angels of the seven churches, the messengers of the seven churches, there he is among them. And he's right in the middle. He's in the middle of whatever you're going through right now, whatever I'm going through right now. We might have got ourselves in a mess that He didn't ordain. We might be wavered. We can be a lot of things right now. We might be right, as far as we know, right in the center of His will. But at all those places, He's still in the midst. We never go anywhere without Him. The message of the new covenant is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Hallelujah to His name. And then we looked at it from the standpoint of the things that He does, represented by this description of Him here. We look at the fact that he empowers the church by the fact that he's in the middle of it, drawn from verses 12 and the first part of 13. We look at the fact that not only does he empower the church, but he intercedes for the church. We have an advocate with the Father. Who's at the Father's right hand? The Bible says in Hebrews 7.25 that he ever lives to make intercession for us. Praise his name. We see not only that he empowers the church and he intercedes for the church, but he purifies the church. We're positionally pure. Our standing with God is as good as it'll ever be because it's perfect, positionally. But we stand in need daily of a practical cleansing, don't we? We still carry some things with us. We still have a sin nature who's not really us, but we still have the power of a dwelling sin within us. It's not us, but it's still there and still tries to influence and control everything that we do and, and everything that we say. And sometimes we yield to that indwelling sin even though we have an option now and we don't have to we stand in need of cleansing and he certainly does that he purifies us he also speaks authoritatively to his church in the purification we see it in verses 14 and 15 in the intercession we see it in the latter part of verse 13 and then we see in verse 15 in the first part that he speaks authoritatively to his church his sovereign power his supreme authority he has the right to speak he alone has the right to speak. And we would do well, understatement, to listen. 
how often Jesus said in the Bible, in the scriptures, in his earthly sojourn when he was here in the in the flesh. He who has the ears to hear, let him hear. He basically was going around and saying, listen up. He said in John chapter 12, you need to listen to the light while it's here because the darkness will overtake you if you don't. It's incredibly important when God speaks. It's infinitely important when God speaks and the church must listen. We don't have Him to blame for not speaking. We don't have Him to blame for anything He might speak that we don't appreciate or like. The blame lies with us when we don't listen. Because God is always speaking. It's also Jesus is the head of the church and that's seen in verse 16. He alone is the head of the church. He's not a figurehead as sometimes we treat him. He is the head of the church. A position he holds because of the price that he was willing to pay and did pay for it. He purchased the church with his own blood. It's a source of great grief for me as a pastor and a, and a believer now to see people's disposition toward the church. It is so undervalued among professing believers. I've never seen anything like it. And it just seems to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. It is a tragedy. It's an extraordinary tragedy. Christ so values the church, He gave His life for it. And for us to undervalue it is blasphemy. It's an affront, an attack against its sovereign head and lover. We've used the analogy before. And it is true. If you come to me, have a relationship with me. And you say, you know what, Brother Lenz, I love and appreciate you, but boy, I just have issues with your wife. There's only going to be so far that we go in relationship. We're not going to get very far in our relationship because of your disposition toward my bride. And how true that is with Christ and His church. I just wanted to stop there for just a second to personally reflect on that because that is a big issue nowadays. And, it, and as a pastor, with the perspective I hold on that, I've never seen anything like it. The church is precious to Jesus. He spilled his blood for it. It was the general reminder that the only one was necessary when Paul left the Ephesian elders and he said, wolves are going to sneak in among these people and try to destroy them. Don't know. Don't say that I didn't warn you ahead of time it's going to happen. And you tend to this flock. You don't be a hireling. You be a shepherd. And you stand between the wolves and these sheep and you say, you know what? If you're going to get to them, you've got to go through me. And you do that. And here's, here's enough that you need to do. This is enough you need to know to motivate you to do that. He purchased them with His own blood. I don't know how you could assign greater value to a body, an organism, than to say that you're willing to spill the blood of Christ to purchase it. And then, He protects His church. That's seen in verse 16. I'm so grateful that He protects His church. And this is kind of where we stopped last week. And if you look at it, I'm going to give you some verses again, if you will, but... Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the forces of hell will not overpower it. So grateful for that. The picture of that, dear friends, is not that the church is on the offensive, holding up in the corner somewhere, and the gates of hell are pushing against it. It's quite the contrary. I mean, on the defensive. It is the picture of the church on the offensive, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church overrunning their gates, not the gates of hell overrunning ours. The work of the kingdom is going to go forward. It is going forward. Don't be, don't be discouraged about it. 
Don't let, don't let us not look at apparent setbacks and, and be drawn into the deceit of thinking that God's work, His complete work in His church is going to be hindered or derailed or stopped or not come to pass or fully come to pass the way that God has decreed it because that is just not true. Hallelujah for that. And then we see in verse 16 that Christ reflects His glory through His church. Christ reflects His glory through His church. Look at it. It says, He had in His right hand seven stars, and out of His mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and His countenance was like the sun shining in all of its strength. He left us here. He's left us here in between now and future glory for Him to indwell and be seen through the life, witness, and profession of the people that He's claimed to Himself through His blood. In the environs that you live and work and are called in, you are a gift to that environment because everybody around stands to benefit from your presence because Jesus is present within you. And the issue is whether or not He's going to be seen. Is the issue is just whether or not we're going to get out of the way and let Him display Himself in His full orbed glory through the way that we conduct ourselves and the way we confess why we conduct ourselves the way we do. We're holy. We are set apart. We're His own. The word church, from the Greek word ecclesia, means set apart. A people set apart for God unto Himself that are to be different than everybody around. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. What a privilege. It doesn't make it arrogant, breed arrogance or pride. Quite the contrary, it makes us humble. But we need to be gently reminded that when we walk into a room... We carry the fragrance of Christ. We carry His light. We are agents of His love. We are conduits through which it's supposed to flow. We are avenues through which it can and is supposed to, in God has decreed and willed that He flow. Then, in Ephesians chapter 20, verses 20 through 21, it says, Now to Him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us to Him, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. We are here to bring Him glory. It just seems, it just means that you know the Bible says, what an opportunity for us. Think about what the Bible says. The Bible says in Titus that we are to adorn the gospel of God. It means that our life are set forth in our families, in our church, and in our communities to make the gospel look attractive. Just because we're dismissed and just because there's hostility toward our faith, it should never come as a result, hostility should never come as a result of our actions. Our actions should make the hostility and those who 
exercise hostility, feel all the more guilty for exercising it because they found nothing wrong in us. If we're the ones who live the life of love, if we're the ones who share truth, if we're the one who believes and shares truth, the Bible says that the church is the pillar and the ground of truth. If the church is not the purveyor of truth, if the church is not the declaration of truth, not only proclaimed, professed, but also practiced, then the lost world will find it nowhere. Isn't it something that in John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. One of the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. I am the light of the world. Think about this, children. I am the light of the world, Jesus says. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Who's the light of the world? Jesus. I am the light of the world. If there's any light or vision in this world, it will be for me. Not just given for me. It doesn't just come forth from me. It is me. I don't just shine light. I am light. And then yet, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, verses that we're all familiar with, it says you are the light of the world. Now which is it? Is it that Jesus is the light of the world? Or is it that you and I are the light of the world? The answer is yes. Obviously, for both of those things to be true, this must be what that means. It must mean that the light of the world has been implanted into repentant believers. And it's in His intent for that light to shine through repentant believers, the very life and light of Jesus Christ Himself. And who gets glory for that? Who gets glory for that? Henry tells us about how this journey he's been on. He didn't get there bragging about himself. He's bragging about the Lord. What did God do? The timely word that God spoke through uh, the Kellys to them. They don't, they're not glory for that. They're glorifying God for doing that. That's God doing that, shining His light through His own. It says, You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And He says, you are the light of the world. And what's the answer? They're both true because it's one truth. That is the gospel truth that Jesus Christ, as a repentant believer, lives inside you and I. That is not to be cloaked. That is not to be apologized for. That is not to be hidden. So we get up in a room somewhere and just wait and hold out till Jesus comes because all we have all these promises that He will. We are in the world, but we're not of it. We are strategically placed in places. We've talked about this before. But wouldn't it be strange if we came in here and all the light in the room, every one of the lights in the room were all put in this corner right here and they were not distributed out. Somebody came in here strategically planned to put the lights in such a place to distribute the light in this place to light out the whole room. And that's exactly what God has done with you and I. 
He has strategically placed us in the environments that we're in, the church that we're in, and the communities that we're in, and beyond, and moves about in that place strategically with a specific plan to spread the light in the most optimal way. That even informs our prayers for our leaders, the President of the United States and others who lead this country. We pray for them. We pray for their salvation if they're not saved. But we pray that they will govern in such a way that we will live peaceable lives so that in that peaceable life that we live, the gospel is optimized and goes further than it might otherwise go. It's all about the gospel, isn't it? It's not about our comfort. It's not about our agenda. It's not about our ideology. It's about the gospel. We're lighthouses, aren't we? We're lighthouses. There's so much you can truth you can derive from that, and we're not going to that now, but we're set as lights. Jesus reflects his glory, shining through his countenance, his countenance shining through. And how is it best known? It's when we love each other. We receive his love. We're filled up to it to overflow it, and then we share it with others, starting with the church and behind, even extending to enemies and persecutors and everybody in between. That is a holy life. That's a life that cannot be produced by any scheme of man, but it is always admired. Even lost people admire sacrificial living. They don't understand it, but they admire it. It draws attention. What does it draw attention to? You and I? Of course not. I'm always bothered by testimonies when people give testimonies to talk about all that they gave up to follow Christ rather than talking about the inherent value of following Christ and the rest of that stuff is nothing but rubbish. The only thing I gave up was what bound me. <laughs> it's the only thing I ever give up. It's an act of worship because He's worthy. And look at His response. The one who's in the midst who does all these things for us. Let's get a fresh vision of Him, church. He loves us so much. The power is here. He's available. His attributes are not available to us. He's available to us. And as a result, His attributes are displayed through us and are formed in us. Christian life is not about looking at Jesus and following Jesus. The Christian life of the new covenant is being dwelt by Jesus. Christ in you and I, the hope of glory. Look what it says in verse 16, 17. It's, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Does that not sound familiar to you? Does that not reverberate through Scripture? The response of somebody coming into the presence of a holy God. Have you ever seen it where somebody just stood up and said, God showed up, I saw him, and I stood up and said, I'm here for duty, aren't you proud to see me? I think of the churches that make claims nowadays, have golden stardust falling from the sky in their churches and say this is the Shekinah glory this is the presence of God the only problem with that is is nobody would be standing there with their hands waved yelling in unknown tongues to receive it they would all be flat on their face with broken noses because that's how fast they went to the ground because they were absolutely terrified to be in the presence of a holy God there is no strutting in front of Jesus there's prostration there is falling down. But it doesn't stop there. Hallelujah. It doesn't stop there. Same thing happened to Daniel. Daniel said, There's no strength in me. For I turned. And he saw the Lord. And he retained no strength. The Bible says that he 
was like a dead man. Daniel. In Daniel chapter 10, verses 8 through 12, I was left alone looking at this great vision. No strength was left in me. My face grew deathly pale and I was powerless. I heard the words he said and when I heard them, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground and suddenly a hand touched me. <laughs> exactly what happened here. A hand touched me and raised me to my hands and knees and he said to me, Daniel, you're a man treasured by God understand the words I'm saying to you. Stand on your feet, for I have now been sent to you. And after he said this, I stood trembling. Do not be afraid, Daniel. And he said to me, from the first day that you purposed to understand and humble yourself before your God, your prayers were heard and I have become because of your prayers. An angel came in holy splendor and wonder and visited the Lord and gave Daniel a vision and instruction from above. He goes on to say in chapter 8, verse, in, or earlier, he said in eight, chapter 8, verse 17, So he approached where I was standing, and when he came near, I was terrified and fell face down. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision refers to the time of the end. Samson's mother and father got a vision of God. And it's recorded in Judges chapter 13, 22, verse 22, their response. You know what it was? We're going to die, he said to his wife, because we have seen God. We're going to die. We've seen God. And then his wife turns around and says to him, If the Lord had intended to kill us, He wouldn't have accepted the burnt offering and the grain offering from us and would not have shown us all these things spoken to us like this. God said, get up. Hallelujah. Because they were redeemed. Just like He said to John in this passage. Ezekiel fell on his face when he got a vision from heaven. Job, he said, you know what? I've got a vision from you. And Job was slain the rest of what was left of him. Paul saw the vision from Jesus on the Damascus Road. And he got up after being just absolutely put prostrate on his feet. And the Lord spoke to him. And the next thing he gets is a commission. What do you want me to do, Lord? And then the Lord told him what he wanted him to do. That's the encouraging thing, isn't it? That the Lord is going to want us to get up. He got up. See, there was fear at first in John. And rightly so. He fell down as a dead man in the presence of a holy God. MacArthur comments on this. In spite of his sinfulness, John, in the presence of the glorious Lord of heaven, John had nothing to fear because that same Lord had paid by his death the penalty for John's sins and all of those who believe in Him and risen to be His eternal advocate. Hallelujah. He went on to comment, the knowledge that Christ loves us and released us from our sins by His blood provides the assurance that is the balance to the reverential fear His glory and majesty evoke. See, when the Lord speaks, there's an edge to his words on one side and on the other. On one side, he's a just God and he cuts through in judgment. He informs us of the wrath to come for the unrepentant. That's one side of his sword. The other side of his sword is he's a savior. And when he pulls it back out, that judgment that the repentant deserved was taken out and he was sliced for our transgressions. For the unrepentant, they will be. That's the two edges of that sword. And some people need 
swords for battle. God only needs His words to do His battle. After all, they're powerful enough to create everything that we see right now. God spoke and everything appeared. So the first edge of His sword evoked fear in John. Not because of positional righteousness, but because of practical righteousness. He was still a man that was in process, even though he was in way up in years at this time. He still had some junk to deal with, just like you and I do. And that sword sliced him that way. But then the other sword came back the other way because he witnessed that sword pierce the Savior's side. That same sword pierced God's Son's side, and out from it flowed blood and water that relationship and fellowship have been purchased now for Him. And now Christ can say, you need not be afraid. Absent me, you'd have reason to be afraid. Absent my blood, you'd have reason to fear. I promise you, you would have plenty enough reason to be afraid. But now, you have no reason to be afraid. In the Old Covenant, Moses was up on the mount and he was meeting with Jesus and he was the only one who could go up there. And what was going on at the bottom? There was a guard placed and nobody approached that mountain because it was smoke and fire going up there. And God said, you get anywhere near this mountain, I'll slay you like that. The only one who had permission to go up there and deal with God was Moses, who is a type of Jesus Christ. Who's the only one who can deal with God on our behalf and praise His holy name? He did. And as a result of that, he can lift his hand on him and say to the same thing that you and I do, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. He put his right hand on him, signifying that his judgment now has been declared. You are worthy in my sight, John. You're worthy. Praise. I made you worthy. You saw me die. And you know what? If you and I are in here and we repented toward God and put faith in Jesus Christ, we saw Him die too. We actually happened to be there. I saw Him raised. I've been to the tomb. I don't have to go to the Holy Land to go there. I've been there. I was there when it happened. And so were you. The Bible says we were credited with it. Hallelujah. I'd like to go there someday, but I don't need to go there. Born again of the Spirit of God. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am He who lives. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. John himself wrote in the Gospel of John these words from heaven. Jesus said this, Because I live, you too shall live. So I don't just look at that and say, Jesus, I'm glad for you that you died and you got raised from the dead and you're getting all this done. I look at Jesus and say, You did that for me. I don't look at that as a a witness, I look at that as a participant. I have a stake in this, and so do you. He came out of that grave. He lives forever. And because He lives forever, I live forever. Isn't that wonderful? No wonder He tagged an amen at the end. Henry just made an audible amen when we read it out loud. And so do I. And every one of you in your hearts say amen to that. He's dead, but now He's alive and He lives forevermore. And guess what that means for you and I as repentant believers? That we live forevermore. If Jesus Christ can die, I can die. If Jesus Christ can't die, neither can I. Praise His name for that. This is meant, dear believers, to encourage us. This is meant to encourage us. This is meant to show us the results not of a man becoming God. No. 
of God becoming a man. The Christian witness is not about a man who became God. It's about a God, the God, who became a man. And as a result, that reached and redeemed you and I. The devil tries to blaspheme his identity. He tries to mar his purposes. He tries to cast doubt on its effectiveness. He tries to mar the claims of Christ and God and what God says about His Son and what He does for those who believe in Him. He tries to cast doubt on that. It can't be that good. It's not that real. You've got to participate. You've got to help God out. It can be a billion different lies floated, but every one of them center around really that one thing. Man did not become God. God became a man. Now, I want you to see the encouragement. I'm going to show you something that I hope will bless you in the Scriptures. When we look at the glorified Christ and we look at the provision and we look at the fact that we are not related to and in union with a distant God who's far removed from what you're going through right now, but a God who's right in the middle of what you're going through, and if you care to turn aside and actually look at Him and not look at your circumstances, but keep your eyes fixed on the God who is sovereign over them, no matter where you are right now, if you continue to keep your gaze, if you do like Brooke asks us to pray for every week, that she would set her mind on things above and not on things on earth where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God and we're sitting there with Him, if we decide and make a determined choice through God's Word to be informed of our faith and let it anchor us, if we look up before we look out, we're going to be encouraged. We're not going to be discouraged. But if you look out and then look up, you're going to be discouraged. Because the tendency is if we so focus on out, we get so overwhelmed we don't even bother to look up. This is what happened to... John, this is what happened to everybody who encountered God, and this is what happens to you and I. We look up, then we look in. John looked up, saw Jesus. He looks in and sees on his own nothing. And Jesus affirms him and says, No, it's not your life anymore, John. I did it for you. Now, look up. And what's the next thing he says? Write about these things. Up, in, and out. Same thing happened to Isaiah. He looked up, saw God, looked at himself, saw one worthy of judgment. Jesus cleanses him from the tongs from the fire and the altar, symbol of his substitutionary death. Turns around. Next thing he hears from God is, go. 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 Some of you in here are discouraged. Discouragement is one of the greatest tools of the enemy. To discourage you. He can just about shut down in practice God's plans for a believer who lets discouragement take root in their heart. But I want, I got I want, I got an amazing passage of scripture I want us to look at. And I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 49. I was reading this the other day in my personal Bible time. And I've read this before, and so have you. And I just have to tell you, I was sitting there, and I told Jill, I said, Jill, you, I, I want you to, I want you to listen to this. I've, I've discovered something amazing in God's word I never have seen before, and it just blessed me to know in and encouraged me. And I hope that this morning, 
it encourages you. Because I've sought the Lord about this, and I believe that it's a matter of obedience for me to share this with you. God became a man. And His name is Jesus Christ. That's the Christian profession. And He is Lord. He didn't become Lord. He will one day be Lord. He is Lord. This is Jesus speaking. God the Son speaking in this passage. Beginning in Isaiah chapter 49 verse 1. Now you listen to this. Listen, O coastlands, to me. And take heed, you peoples, from afar. This is Jesus speaking. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the matrix of my mother, He has made mention of my name. That was fulfilled in Luke chapter 1 verse 31 when Jesus was named by God the Father. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. Who could that be but Jesus? Because what protrudes from his mouth, symbolic of his words, are a sharp sword. It cuts both ways. He's a just God, and he's also a Savior. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. The Bible says at just the right time, God sent his son. There was a message that Brian preached when I was out one Sunday about the timeliness of Christ's appearance and the timeliness of the message of the gospel and how it went out in such a way because of the timeliness. It was exactly at the perfect time that God arranged for it to happen. He kept His Son in the quiver. And when it came out, it came time to take Him out of the quiver and draw back the bow named at the target, which was the cross. He let it go. Boom! There Christ comes to earth, prophesied and foretold all the way back from Genesis chapter 3. And even before then, in eternity past, He came out of the quiver, came out, God drew back the bow and hit the target and dealt a mortal blow to the enemy. Hallelujah. Look what it says. And He said to me, this is God the Father speaking to God the Son, You are my servant, O Israel. Now, we understand that to mean that when he referred to the servant and he referred to him as Israel, he's using Israel as another name for Messiah, for Christ. He's not talking about the nation of Israel. He's talking about their covenant head, the one promised to the seed that was promised to Abraham back when God saved him. And he said, through your seed, through your seed, I'm going to make, not seeds, through your seed, I'm going to make your descendants more in number than the stars in the sky. Now how do we know that he's not referring to the nation of Israel here, but yet referring to the Messiah? The context demands it. Because if you look at it, when he said, he said to me, and then he says in verses 5 and 6 how he's going to use him, it says he's going to use him to bring Jacob back to himself and to be a light to the Gentiles. That is not Israel. That is Messiah. Can't be anybody else. So, he's in the polished shaft. 
He comes out at just the right time. Sharp as a two-edged sword. Hidden in the shadow of his hand. The first first 30 years when he came here on earth, we don't know hardly anything about his life. The last three years is where the gospel narratives, most of them pick up and tell us the work and witness and death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. He's hidden in the shadows. He comes out. He says to me, the Father says to the Son, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, this is Jesus now. This is remarkable. This is Jesus talking back to the Father. This is God the Son speaking to God the Father. Now think about this. These words are attributed to the Savior Himself speaking to the Father. And here's what He says. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Now stop there. That's Jesus speaking to the Father and saying, you know what? All this was for nothing. I've done all this for nothing. I came into my own and my own what? Receives me not. I came here. I offered them the kingdom. And what did they say back to me? Did they receive my message? Did they say, here's our king? No. They said, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. We have no king but Caesar. I've labored. I did all this for nothing. This turned out to be nothing. Have you ever felt that way? Do you feel that way now? I can tell you this right now. I'll raise my hand high. I have felt that way and I still struggle with feeling that way now. And you go, you know what, Lord? Is this worth it? It seems like every time we take two steps forward, we wind up two steps back. Fear plays us sometimes. We look and go, you know what, are there any results to this? I mean, what's going on? Is there any fruit for the labor? What's happening? Why? Is following you, is this it? Let's don't be super spiritual in here. I don't care who you are. I know you can identify with that. Let me tell you something right now. If you try to be super spiritual, not alleging that you are, but if you try to be super, super, super spiritual and say that I can identify with that, then you're a better Christian than Christ was because that's what He said. Isn't that remarkable that Christ Himself would say that? If that stopped right there, I just, I just stopped reading. And I said, you, you don't want... You, I, I said, the context of this, this is coming from Jesus. I've looked at every commentary that I know to look at. And every one of them read the same. And even Alan Redpath, who wrote the best commentary that exists, in my opinion, on the book of Isaiah, it is so unbelievably good, said this. This chapter is full of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the words quoted could not possibly have their complete fulfillment in any other save in our Savior. So these words are from Jesus, and He comes out of His mouth and He says, I've labored in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing, and in vain. But hallelujah, 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 it doesn't stop there. God looked at him and said, Israel, my servant. The word Israel means God prevails. The word Israel can also mean governed by God. Is there anyone who has 
has ever walked on the face of this earth whose life was governed by God except Jesus? I'm asking, do you know of anybody? Do you know of anybody that can be said of that life is perfectly governed by God? No. He's the only one who completely submitted and pleased the Father in every way. We know that beyond the shadow of a doubt because of the clear testimony of Scripture. He pleased His Father. He was governed by God. Israel, you are. And He, 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 he says back to the Father, I've labored in vain. This has been in vain. And you know what? By earthly standards, you measure His life. If you were there reporting on it, you would go, man, this religious leader who held out promise and looked like he was going to be the one that could lead and it was the one that was the fulfillment of all these Israelite people and all they said about him and all that. And boy, if there ever looked like one that had the gifts to pull it off, it was this guy. And tragically enough, we're reporting here in the Jerusalem Post that he got, he got crucified today as a common criminal. He was found guilty and convicted of crimes and was stripped naked and crucified outside the streets of Jerusalem. What a dismal failure. What a disappointment. Hopes all over the nation have been dashed because this life that held out such promise has now been ended. And not just ended. He didn't die of cancer. He didn't die of natural causes. He was crucified as a common criminal. If you feel like it's in vain, if you feel like the changes you've had to make in your life, if it's, it's been costly for you to follow Jesus, and it's costly to follow Jesus, salvation is free. But following Jesus is costly. You will find out over time it'll cost you relationships. It'll cost you your reputation. It'll cost you in every way imaginable. If you really want to follow Him. That's promised. That's not, that's not some wishy-washy thing that just a certain few people go. If you take Jesus at His word and you let Him do with your life in living sacrifice what He intends to do, it will cost you. Not to be saved. But it is a root and the fruit of having been saved. It can mean many different things for many different people. It will cost you. It will cost you sometimes to endure a very difficult marriage. If you will it to say, Lord, I'm, that's me. I'm all in. I'm not leaving. I'm telling you that right now. I'm standing ground. It could cost you in being in a difficult situation that you'd like to change right now. It could cost you your reputation. It could cost you to be uh, marginalized, defriended, misunderstood often, scorned, shunned. But I'm so grateful it didn't end with that statement. <laughs> immediately, immediately out of his mouth, in the same sentence, there's only a semicolon in my Bible there. Yet surely. <laughs> Look at the rest of the verse. My just reward is with the Lord and my work is with my God. <laughs> Do you know what revelation is? Revelation is a detailed fulfillment of the fact that his life was eternally successful. Dear ones, it wasn't in vain. It wasn't for nothing. It wasn't dashed hopes that will never be realized, even for the nation of Israel, because one day they're going to be gathered back together and they're going to nationally repent of having done what they did to their own Messiah. They're going to receive Him. And you know what? He said, you know what? It's not enough that it's just we're going to do that for Israel. It's not enough. 
We're going to do that for the we're going to do that for the Gentile nations. That's what the coastland refers to. The coastlands. He's saying all these lands everywhere beyond, stretching to the farthest, most parts of the earth. I'm going to reach and redeem from every tribe, tongue, and nation, people unto myself. You want to talk about a success? You want to talk about an eternal success? Now listen. The issue is not discouragement because everybody shares that struggle. The issue is not discouragement. The issue is letting discouragement take root. As soon as he said what he said, that he had the potential for discouragement, he experienced the temptation to be discouraged, but right out of his mouth. He didn't hesitate. He didn't go to anybody else. He didn't listen to anybody else. He didn't go and try to tap into somebody else's wisdom. He didn't go search out. He didn't look at his calendar and go, Oh, I can have hope because things are going to change one day. He didn't look at his checkbook and say, Wow, we're building up some assets here. He didn't look at his... Resume, he didn't look at his Facebook page, he went nowhere else. He just said, Listen, this is what I know. I've been promised by God that if I will faithfully obey him, I can purchase a church that he will give me for eternity, whereby he's eternally glorified forever by reconciling unworthy people to himself through my sacrificial death, burial, and resurrected life. I was promised that. Let me tell you something right now. Latch on to the promises of God. And when discouragement plagues you, when discouragement goes after you, and it does and it will, you get right out of your mouth and quote right back to the, the Father of the universe the promises that He set forth in His world. He said, My just reward is with the Lord and my work is with my God. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. One commentator said this, when we consider what and who the Lord Jesus had to work with on this earth, we certainly must believe that one of the greatest temptations He was faced with was discouragement. This passage shows that even though He ministered in difficult and discouraging circumstances, He never gave in to discouragement, but always put His trust in the Lord. To that I say, Amen, Hallelujah. The Bible says to be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because your labor is not in vain. to His name. Dear ones, turn aside. Let's reconsider. Let's get a fresh vision of who it is that's among our midst. Who's among us? Who is in our midst? Who is the Lord we serve? What's He like now? This heavenly vision He got, you know what the heavenly vision He got was? The heavenly vision He got was the unification of glorified humanity and deity. When He turned around, he saw glorified humanity and deity. And guess what awaits us? Glorified humanity. Not deity, but glorified humanity. So in Jesus, for the rest of His eternity, He took on human flesh, and He has glorified human flesh, humanity, and His deity. And the Bible says that we'll see Him one day and we'll be like Him because we will see Him as He is. And we will have glorified humanity in the presence of deity forever. That's promised. Our reward is with the Lord. Don't let the discouragement get in. Don't let it take root. Don't feel guilty for feeling it. Because that's how the devil will slap you around. How could you be discouraged? You're supposed to go around that positive all the time and be, have a big smile. And go, you know what? Right now I'm kind of just discouraged. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's something wrong with taking root. Let it take root. Don't let it take root. Immediately get your vision and fix it on above. Turn aside 
and look at the one who's in the midst. Reflect on all these attributes that we've talked about and what it means to you practically and to me practically, how He speaks to us authoritatively, how He protects us and all the things He does for us. I'll close with this. I hope this encourages you. I hope you're encouraged this morning. This comes back to me. This has been coming back to me. I'm going to be honest with you. As a matter of fact, we're working on some things right now that we've been praying about to encourage you. I believe the body of Christ needs encouragement. That's what the word keeps coming back to me over and over and over again. It's encouragement, encouragement, encouragement. Dear ones, we couldn't be in a better letter in the Bible to get encouragement from than this one. For the unrepentant, it's not so. They look at this and they either say, I can't be true, or they either take a pause and have an honest moment and say, boy, if that is true, I'm in trouble. But for the repentant, it is glorious because we have one. Now, let's close with this. Turn with me to Revelation. The Revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 12, verse 12. Revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 12, verse 12. I want us to give a pause, an honest pause, an honest reflection. I want you to think about how I'm hoping that we walk out of here with a renewed mind about what we face, where we are, and where we're headed. I hope we have a renewed mind about the character and the nature of the victory that has been purchased by Jesus Christ. That we have a fresh vision of it, and that that is the catalyst from God's Word to encourage you today. If you're a repentant believer, you have reason to be encouraged today. The one who's in your midst is for you, no longer against you. Amen? We talked about that last week. But I want you to look at this. We'll get to Revelation 12, Lord willing, one day, but look what it says. Therefore, Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath. Now, now, you and I, in practice, Johnny, not, not, not here now, but in practice, if we were to ask, okay, I want you to finish that sentence. I want you to finish that sentence. Okay, the devil has come down having great wrath in a last-ditch effort to win this thing. Does that sound reasonable? You say, he's come down, he's got great wrath, and he's still duking it out. He's still fighting it out with the Lord. He's desperate, and he's still making a last-ditch effort to, to, to win it. That's not what this Bible says. Look what it says. He's got great wrath and fury. Not because he's still trying to win it, but because he knows that he has a short time. There's a difference between those two. We can see the battle as raging as if the enemy is still in play and that his hopes for victory are still there. And those false hopes, although we know their hopes are false, that he still holds out false hope that he's going to win it. That's not true. He knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that when Christ stepped forth from that grave, He lost it. His battle to keep the elect from being brought to union with Jesus Christ and the eternal promises that are promised there through justice being served on His Son as our innocent substitute 
and the raising from the dead to show that the just God of the universe was satisfied with that payment. And now the elect are now set free. He knows that he has been defeated. And so everything he's doing right now is not a last ditch effort to secure victory. It is born out of rage and anger and frustration because he knows it's soon coming to an end for him. There's a difference between the thinking of those two. He is not still in play. The time is ticking. The clock is running out. But the victory has already been secured. And we're the... We're not the first team. We're not the first string. We're by the eight million string and we're out on the field out there doing our thing. But the battle has already been won. Hallelujah, amen. The first two chapters have no devil. And I've got news for you this morning. The last two chapters of the Bible have no devil. Amen? Hallelujah. Don't give in to discouragement. And if you do, understand this. Let, let Jesus just stroke you with His words, with the nail scars right there. And as a gentle reminder how much He loves you. And if you're discouraged right now, let Him stroke you with His words. And He'll say this to you. He won't say, I cannot believe that you're that weak in faith that you'd be discouraged. He would say, you know what? I know exactly what that's like. I was tempted. I was tempted to actually believe in my humanity. His humanity is the only thing that was tempted, not His divinity. In my humanity, I was tempted to believe this was for nothing. And all the evidence when I came down here indicated that, Caroline. I mean, by every measure of human success, you would go, this is for nothing. I was tempted to think that. But listen, because I didn't give in to that, you don't have to. Now, you can, but you don't have to. And you can look up, and you look at me, and you remember the promises I've made to you. Because every one of them are intact. Every one of them are eternal. And not one jot or tittle of this word is going to go away until every last bit of it is fulfilled. And everything is going to pass away, but the word of God lives for Amen. So if you're discouraged, don't let it take root. If it has to take root, just ask God to forgive you. And let me tell you something. Don't pass it over. Don't collect $200. Look up. Quick as you can. Look up. Boom! Like that. Just look up. Look up. And sucker from the breast of heaven. And say, oh Lord, I'm not going to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. It is what you say that informs me. I have an informed hope. I don't have false hope. I've got real hope. And it runs against everything that anybody can see. And I look like a fool in the world's eyes for possessing it. But in your eyes, I'm the wisest man on the face of the earth. And I'd rather be a fool in the eyes of the world and wise in the eyes of God than the other way around. Amen? That's a reason. It's not the only one, but that is a reason we have the Lord's Supper. And, and I'm just so thankful for everybody who come and help get this together and do this for us because it's such a blessing. We have the Lord's Supper to remind us of that. We are not celebrating defeat here. Amen? This isn't a funeral. It's a marriage. It's a prelude to a marriage supper. I don't know about you, but my marriage supper was a happy event. Amen. And we could have this and we could remember the Lord's death until He comes. Because that death purchased life for me. Don't be discouraged, dear one. If you are, Jesus knows about it. Because He experienced it. 
take the discouragement of him, latch on to the promises of God, and say no to the lies of the enemy.